We continue on in Joshua, we're in chapter 10, we were in chapter 9 last week, and we looked at the Gibeonites and how they deceived the Israelites into convincing uh, the Israelite leadership to, um, to make a peace treaty with them, an oath of peace with them. Um, as we looked at that last week, my attempt was to describe the tension that the Israelites must have felt when they grumbled against their leader, both that God had commanded them to to bring to destruction every living being that refused to bow their knee to God, but also then that they had made a a, a treaty of peace, an oath of peace with the Gibeonites, and the tension that that must have elicited in them. Somebody contacted me this week and said, you know, I think it's a dangerous thing. It sounded like you were saying that there is tension within God, that God is divided in His own conflict, in His own mind between being a God of grace and a God of justice. And I did not want to communicate that God is reluctant in either His holiness or His justice or that God is reluctant in His graciousness because none of those prove true in Scripture. In fact, what we see throughout all of Scripture is that God is complete in every way, in His justice and in His holiness in his mercy and in his love and we even sing a song that reminds us that at the cross is the trysting place the place of romance where heaven's love and heaven's justice meet and to miss either his love or his justice being united in his person is to wrongly communicate who God is And so I just want to make sure that we understand that clearly, that the tension that is felt is with the Israelites who wondered, who is this God who has already punished us? Remember, in Jericho, and Achan in Jericho, who refused to devote everything to destruction but took some of his own, who is this God who has told us to destroy every living creature that refuses to bow before him? And yet we have made an oath of peace with the Gibeonites. And as we looked last week through the history of Scripture, we see that unpacked so that we could see in this command for destruction, we could see the holiness and the justice of God. And in this oath of peace, that in many ways the Israelites were tricked to giving, and yet God honors here we see his heart of forgiveness, of mercy, and of reconciliation. Neither of which is in conflict with God, but makes all of us scratch our heads and say, who is this God? And in many ways, we turn to this passage today to be reminded more about who this God is. And I want to say, what, an, what a perfect passage for Thanksgiving. And you go, what? Are you kidding me? A Thanksgiving passage out of this text? And yet what I want you to hear is simply this. God fights his battles. God fights his battles. Therefore, you can be strong and courageous, not afraid or dismayed. That's what I want you to think about for the next few minutes. I want you to think about this idea that God fights his battles. Therefore, you can be strong and courageous, not afraid and dismayed. We're going to look at this battle, and then we're going to look at what Joshua does to the kings after this battle, and then we're going to see how this applies to us today. 
Look at this context with me, if you will. Turn to your pages, 185 in those blue pew Bibles. You want to look at this. What you see in the context is the very beginning of chapter 10, the same way that chapter 9 started. Chapter 9 started, and it said that the kings of the Amorites saw what had happened to the Israelites at Ai, and they decided to amass their armies and go up against them. And remember from that point, then we took a side note because the Gibeonites said, no, that's not going to be us. And the Gibeonites tricked the Israelites into a treaty. Go back and look at chapter 9 if you want to. But here we see chapter 10 starting the same way. That this king, Adonai Zedek of Jerusalem, saw what had happened with the Israelites, specifically that they had made a treaty with the Gibeonites, and he was afraid. He was afraid, and it's interesting that it says he was afraid here because he says that the forces of the Gibeonites plus the Israelites will be too much for us. He notes that the Gibeonites came from a really, really large city. He said it was like a royal city, didn't have a king. You know that they had envoys that went to the Israelites instead and that they made a treaty with the Israelites. And, and, and this king noted that they were phenomenal warriors. You can see that in those first couple of verses. And then from there you can see that he called the other kings to be with him and to go up against them. Look at verse 4, and you hear what this king of Adonai Zedek said. Come up to me and help me. Let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. So all five of these kings join their forces and they come out against Gibeon. All right? Their idea is let's crush Gibeon and then we'll be able to crush the Israelites. You see in this context a little bit more of this idea of a holy war, that God brought His people into Canaan to give them the land that they might become a nation ruled by God, having received His Ten Commandments, and fulfilling His promise to Abraham to be a blessing to all the nations. But here you see that these nations who saw the wondrous deeds who we hear earlier, their hearts had even melted as they saw God bless His people and bring them to the land, refusing to submit to Him. Refusing, as Rahab did, to turn from her own people and align herself with the Israelites, or as the Gibeonites did, refusing to turn and seek mercy from Israel, but rather to fight against them. And then what you see in verse 6 is that the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us from all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country. They are gathered against us, it says there in verse 6. And then we see this, I like this phrase, right? This phrase, do not relax your hand. This idea that if you relaxed your hand, you would let go of something, right? Do you see that? It said, hold us fast in your hand. I've been watching climbing movies these last couple of months, and there's never a time when climbing is in the mainstream. And it's, I, I don't fool myself, it's still not, but there have been three great movies out recently, and they've been fun to watch. And one of them was with this guy named Conrad Anker, who took another individual, Alex Wildman, up El Cap, and for their quest, they wrote on their hands, hold fast. And that's what they wrote to remember what they were supposed to do. And here the Gibeonites are asking Israel, hold us fast. 
Don't relax your hand. Remember the commitment that you made to us. Now again, there ought to be tension within the Israelites. What is God going to do with this group of people who tricked us into making a treaty with them? What will we do? Well, in verse 7, you see how Joshua responds. Joshua responds by going up to them. Look at what it says in verse 7. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And what we actually hear is that the Lord encourages Joshua. This is an amazing thing. The first act on behalf of the Gibeonites. Joshua responding and said, they're right, we made a treaty with them. But look how the Lord steps in and honors that treaty. The Lord says in verse 8 here, He says, do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. And so it says that Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. So the picture is, is that Joshua and the Israelites have brought the men of valor, these great fighting men, to come and rescue the Gibeonites, those who had tricked them into an oath of peace. And what we begin to find is God's willingness to fight his enemies, right? God's willingness to fight his enemies. Somewhere throughout this night, somewhere throughout this night, Joshua pleads with the Lord. He prays to the Lord. And in fact, that's what makes the next day stand out. Look at verses 12 and verses 14 that reference that. Verse 12, as it describes this battle that's about to ensue, it says that at, at that time Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And then in verse 14 it goes on to say, there's never been a day like this day before when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. This is a unique day when they realize that God fights His enemies. Therefore, the Israelites ought to be strong and courageous, not afraid or dismayed. So that's the context in which we see this battle ensue. And now I want you to look at the battle with me, okay? Because the battle here starts in verse 10. The Israelites have marched all night long. It, it's been a long 20 miles or so to get to this place for battle. And then suddenly, the battle is ensuing. And it says that the Lord did things. Look at verse 10. It was the Lord who threw them into panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Haran and struck them as far as Azekah and Makada. And they fled before Israel while they were going down the ascent of Beth Haran. The Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstorms than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. What do you hear in that description of this battle? You hear, number one, that the Lord threw the Amorites into confusion. He's the one that threw them into confusion. How he threw them into confusion, we're not sure. What we do know is there's a parallel passage when David was fighting against the Philistines, and it says that there was such loud thunderclaps 
that the Philistines were thrown into confusion. So maybe God used claps of thunder to, to, to drive or to throw the Amorites into confusion. But notice that the Lord did it. Notice, too, that in verse 11 it says that the Lord sent stones from heaven. And then it was more descriptive in the second part of verse 11 that He sent hailstones from heaven. And that more died by the hailstones that fell from heaven than those who were chased and killed by the Israelites. This driving as far as Azekah all the way down to Makeda was this idea that they had to run some 20 miles again. That there was this unbelievable pursuit. And there what we see over and over, and it says it again in verse 14, is that the Lord fought for Israel. The Lord fought for Israel. Israel chased the people. But this was indeed a miraculous day. Now the other thing that stands out as miraculous is this poetry that happens through 12 through 13, right? 12 and 13 isn't another day. It's a description of that same day, of that same battle, as is verses 16 all the way through 21. There are three descriptions of the same battle, three things that happened. And in this description, what we hear is either a miracle, right? So listen to how it reads. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, sun stand still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nations took vengeance on, until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. It goes on to say, is it not written in the book of Joshua that the sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day? So either the description there is of a miracle that God did in the midst of this day to make this day last longer. You and I would understand this in scientific terms as the earth stopped spinning. It stood still as God fought on behalf of the Israelites. It is either that miracle or it could also be understood as this poetic imagery that exists in the Bible, not just here but in other places. In Habakkuk, we're told that the sun and the moon stood still in the sense of being in awe as God fought on behalf of His people. We're told this idea that the moon, which led them throughout the night all the way to Gibeon to fight against the Amorites, and the sun that was there from the very beginning of the day when they surprised the Amorites all the way through the day, right? This language of this battle that was unlike any other battle. I don't know the difference. Commentators don't know the difference. And in one sense, I would say it doesn't matter because God has already said that He would fight on behalf of Israel. He has already acted in definitive ways. He's thrown them into confusion. He has thrown hailstones down from heaven and He has pursued them and He has killed more by His own actions than the Israelites did. We're reminded that this is a unique time in history where the end of time judgment breaks into this era of common grace, right? But what's interesting is that the focus of this writer isn't on the miracle. Read verse 14 carefully with me. There has been no day like it before or since. And then the description of that day is this. When the Lord heeded the voice of a man. 
For the Lord fought for Israel. What stood out about this day is that God heeded the voice of a man. Anytime that language is used, God heeded the voice of a man or uh, you know, heeded the voice of, it's almost always used that human beings heed the voice of the Lord. But here we read that unlike any day that had happened before, and until this writer was writing and had happened since, God heeded the voice of a man. And what do you see in this? You see what you've been waiting to see all along, that Joshua, the leader of God's people, cried out to God to save them. Maybe he cried out for a miracle, deliver us, Lord. And the Lord heeded his voice and fought on their behalf. What we see is that the battle belongs to the Lord. God fights his battles Therefore, be strong and courageous, not afraid or dismayed. That leads us into the second half of this. Be strong and courageous, not afraid or dismayed. This call that Joshua gives the leaders in verse 25. I want to look at that with you. Verses 16 through 21 set the stage for this battle and explains to us how the battle that we just read about, how God pursued the Amorite kings and all of the people that stood against him, how he pursued them over 20 miles, sending hail down from heaven. It explains to us how the kings of the Amorites ended up in the cave, right? That they ran as far as they could run, and to escape the hailstones from heaven, they run into a cave. And Joshua is told about that. Joshua says to them, roll large stones over the mouth of the cave and keep them there, but you keep fighting. And so that's what they did. They rolled stones over the mouth of the cave and they continued to seek after everyone who still opposed God. And it says at the end of that, that when they were done, verse 21 says, not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. By the time that that battle was over, no one, was resisting Israel at that point. It says that they had wiped out all of the offenses against Israel, that they had fleed and some had gotten back into their cities safely. But now Joshua deals with the kings. The kings who represent their people. The kings who are the intermediaries between the gods of the nations and the people of the nations. And Joshua does this great thing. The call is for his leaders not to be afraid, but to be strong and courageous. He calls them to hold fast. To hold fast. And what we see is Joshua telling them what to do. He says here in verses 22 through 24, Bring the kings and put your feet on their necks. And Joshua says to them in verse 24, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous. For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. Now the amazing thing that we see here is how God aligns His enemies with their enemies. Right? 
how God fights against His enemies and as the Israelites are obedient to God, their enemies are God's enemies. God's enemies are their enemies. Those with whom they have made peace, the Gibeonites, are the ones who God defends. The same Gibeonites. What we see here is the challenge to be strong and courageous. Not to be afraid and dismayed. Because God fights His enemies. What we see here is Joshua obeying God to the end. And it's because of God's justice, not human justice, that these kings are put to death. We read that Joshua killed them, that he then cursed them in front of everyone who was there by hanging them on a tree. And then, according to God's command, before sundown took them off the tree and put them back in the cave where they had hidden from God and rolled an enormous large stone over that cave. Joshua obeyed to the end. He held fast to God's commands. We've been waiting to see it, haven't we? We've been waiting to see. The first time, Achan didn't in in Jericho. The second time, the, the leaders in Joshua didn't go to the Lord and ask them, what do we do with these people who have come to seek our treaty? But now we see a leader of God's people to whom God heeded His voice. It says that there was never a day like this that God obeyed the voice of Joshua and rescued them. That God proved your enemies are my enemies. Your allies are my allies. Hold fast to me. This is an amazing picture. This picture of the feet of these leaders on the necks of these kings. Remember, these kings aren't just human kings. They are human kings. But as kings, they represent the rulership, the rule of their divine powers to their nations. And God is proclaiming without a doubt, there is no one who stands before me. No one. This God is a God of absolute justice and holiness. But we see Him here absolutely sustaining this oath of peace toward the Gibeonites. And we see Him identifying Himself with Israel. Your enemies are my enemies as long as you hold fast to me. This picture of the enemies being the footstool, right? You see it now. The enemies being the footstool is where David gets this image in Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, wait until all of your enemies have been made your footstool. Right? This picture that the enemies who resist God will all be made God's footstools, that God is sovereign, that no one will stand before him. This is all well and good to understand until you see what happens with the Israelites, right? 
Until you see that these Israelites who were commanded, because God fights His battles, you can be strong and courageous, not afraid and dismayed. The Israelites turned against God. Instead of eradicating everyone from Canaan, the remnant who were left introduced the Israelites who were already prone to idolatry. We had seen their idolatry even at the base of Mount Sinai with the golden calves straight back into idolatry, straight back into worshiping other gods, straight back into oppressing each other, straight back into even human sacrifice, trying to please gods who were not gods at all. And what happens? The prophets begin to list the Israelites along the same list as God's enemies. The Philistines and the Amorites, those from Judah, in Israel begin to be condemned the same way. And you already know that God has promised to fight the battles against His enemies. But now, the scary thing is that Israel has become the enemy of God when we read the history of Israel forward from this point. The prophet Isaiah writes some of the most scathing prophecies against Israel and against God's own people. And he references this day in chapter 28 when he says, like in the day of the valley of Gibeon, God is going to do a deed. But it's a strange deed. God is going to perform a work, but it is an alien work. He whispers to this consistent reality that God fights against His enemies. And He calls it strange and alien because what we see is something that is eerily familiar to this text. What we see would come in the person of Jesus. Another king who would hang on a tree. Who would be cursed by the hanging on that tree who would die and would be thrown into a cave and a large stone would be rolled over the entrance of that cave because God is consistent and from beginning to the end of scripture fights against his enemies even when his enemies are his own people but in this strange and alien. And let it wash over you. Wonderful way. He pours his wrath out on Jesus. The one who would represent his people as their king. But unlike the king, unlike the kings who were thrown into the cave here in our passage. The cave over which entrance a large stone was rolled and remained to the day of this writing. When a large stone was rolled over the cave that held Christ's body, no stone could stop him from being raised again from because our King who bore our sins by the strange and alien and wonderful work of God, 
who fights against his enemies could not be held in the grave because he, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, defeated death, that last enemy. Why is this encouraging to you and me? Because we too have a battle. The Apostle Paul says that our battle in Ephesians 6 is not a battle against flesh and blood, but it is a battle against the spiritual forces of evil in this world. And that includes ourselves, the systems of this fallen world that are set against God, and even the devil and his minions. And what we are called to do in Ephesians 6 is by bearing the armor of God to stand, to hold fast, right? And what is that armor? You know it. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, and the helmet of salvation, right? And what are we given as our offensive tool? The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Remember, God fights the battles against His enemies. Therefore, we can be strong and courageous, not afraid and dismayed, even when that battle is fought against us. Because the incredible thing is, God isn't going to leave you and me divided in our hearts. He is constantly working in us. He is constantly applying His word of truth to the deep places of unbelief where we are still in battle against Him. I had one counselor one time tell me, look, I could ask you enough questions and figure out what's wrong with you, but I'm not good enough. I would kill you in the meantime. <laughs> You know something? God's not like that. He knows how to deal with you and your sin without crushing you. And He's going to do it until you die. He's never finished. He is going to bring you to perfection. And that ought to give you courage. That ought to remind us that just like Joshua who prayed and God obeyed him. There was another Joshua who would pray before he was crucified and say, glorify me with the glory that I had with you before all of time. And God obeyed him. God crushed his son for you and for me. What is this truth that we hold on to? For any who are in Christ, you ought to be reminded every day. I've been reading this book about revival and it says every day we ought to know that one, we're accepted by God because of Jesus. Every day. Not to forget that. Whatever battle is going on in your heart, do you know that you are accepted by God because of Christ? Number two, God's at work in you. Making you more and more like Jesus from the heart out. 
putting to death in you that which is in opposition to him. Number three, that you're in fellowship with him. That we reside in fellowship with the Holy Spirit. And number four, that we have a power at work within us that gives us the authority. We're set free from sin to be able to say, no, I'm not going to believe that anymore. God fights his battles against his enemies. And because he does so, you and I can be strong and courageous, not afraid and dismayed. Look, when we're afraid, we do the same thing that these kings do. We create our own battle plan. And because you and I are so limited, our battle has to become myopic. We think we know how to deal with ourselves, but we do not. God does. That's why this passage invites us to pray to him and cry out for help. Will you do that? But we also don't have to be dismayed because we know one who was our champion, Jesus Christ, who says, hold fast to me, hold fast to me. God is the one who fights his enemies. Therefore, you can be strong and courageous, not afraid and dismayed. Let's pray.